Fiction is the lie that tells the truth. We all have an obligation to daydream. We have an obligation to imagine. It is easy to pretend that nobody can change anything, that society is huge and the individual is less than nothing. But the truth is, individuals make the future, and they do it by imagining that things can be different. Hey all you androids and uh, hoteps. Welcome to Weird Vibes. <laughs> that was um, Mr. Neil Gaiman, which I just, I love that quote so much. It's from his new book, Art Matters. Um, we were lucky enough to see him, what was it, last weekend? I think so. Do um, some, do some Q&A, do a reading. It, it was just a really enriching experience. Yeah. He loves words so much. Yeah. He loves fiction so much. Well, he's so good at words. <laughs> Well, I think that's kind of, that's what we're here to talk about today. Two authors we really care about that love stories, mm -hmm. that absolutely love what the written word can do, aren't pretentious about it, really just love telling like a kick-ass good story. Who are we here to talk about today, Dana? We are here to talk about Joe R. Lansdale and Philip K. Dick. What do these two authors have to do with each other? You might ask, not a damn thing. We just like them. Not a damn, damn thing. <laughs> well, I don't know. In my research, and I think in your research too, we kind of found out they're a lot more similar to each other than we might have thought at first. Yeah, that was honestly a really cool thing that we talked about. We're like, well, how are we going to tie this in together? You know, they both have big bodies of work. They both have had a lot of things translated to other forms of media. But a big thing that we both, I think, found as we were doing our separate research was that, like, they had a lot of um, just interesting similarities. And I feel like it kind of only supports, like, why they were such, uh, or I guess were for Philip K. Dick and is for Joe Lansdale. Mm -hmm. um, like, such prolific writers that can create so much. Yeah. If that makes sense. For me, a lot of it just came down to, hey, both of these guys write a lot of short stories that <laughs> reminds me some of the weirder shit that, like, Ray Bradbury would write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, that really is almost <laughs> my thesis statement yeah. for the episode of, like, these two guys sort of remind me of Ray Bradbury, but not really at all. <laughs> like, kind of in a way, but only if you look at them right and you squint. Yeah. I don't know. So, um, obviously, um, I picked Joe Lansdale because I'm a weirdo. And That's so funny. I was just going to be like, why did Dan smart and... Bright and shiny, like the future, and oh. she loves sci-fi, and she picked Philip K. Dick. So, like, why? What? What stands out about Philip K. Dick to you? Why did you pick him? I was just gonna ask you that about your writer. Um, I chose Philip K. Dick because I, his writing. There's a lot of sci-fi writers that I feel um, really special. I mean, I don't, I want to say bonds with, but like that I'm really, really drawn to in powerful ways. But Philip K. Dick, I think for me, I chose because I, I would consider, among many other readers of his work, that he would be like kind of like one of the godfathers of sci-fi. Um, he is one of those bridgers of, like you're saying about like what Joe Lansdale writes too, is that he bridges uh, whimsy and like actual sci-fi in a way that like, I mean, if you like Ursula Le Guin, I feel like that's another person who does that, who can just create... There are obviously, there's like hard sci-fi that's like space and science, but he also just writes, he, he's really good at asking what if, mm -hmm. and I think that that's really beautiful, and there's just like a lot of different scope of his stories, and also he's really good, the fact that he writes sci-fi about like different 
situations that could make you feel like you're going crazy. I feel like I'm going crazy while I'm reading it, which just kind of speaks to his power as a writer. What was that term you were telling me about? Oh, what his belief Ner- is? Nervous fiction? Oh, paranoid fiction. Paranoid fiction? Yeah. That's so cool. Um, he would be one of the like founders of that, because it was kind of like even an accident. Because a lot of his work is very... like It's sci-fi for sure, but it's it comes from paranoia of like what we're going to turn into and like what we're capable of as people. Definitely. I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of bizarro fiction. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what drew me to Joe Lansdale was yeah. from his short stories originally. And Philip K. Dick falls into that category so firmly for yeah. me that like obviously he's a sci-fi writer sci-fi writer yeah but he's weird man yeah he's super weird he can get kooky and the thing is is he can take um he can take those really really abstract sci-fi ideas that are hard to write about in a book that's just words on paper because it's like a very abstract concept and there's like you know, there's one person having a delusion, so you don't know who the di- dialogue belongs to. Mm-hmm. He's one of the few writers who I can see do that, and it doesn't bother you to read in the sense, like, oh, it's it's cumbersome to read. Like, you know, we talk about Cormac McCarthy not using punctuation. Like, Oh, becomes, Joe Lansdale feels all types of ways about that. All types of ways about that. I can't wait to ask you about that. Um, but it's, it's not cumbersome. He can make you understand really abstract ideas that he's trying to put together um, without making you feel confused, if that makes sense. Oh, I totally get you. He's like a layman and a professional at the same time. He can harness chaos, I think, in a really good way. I think there's that kind of frenzy in the background of a lot of his stories. Like like you're saying, nervous fiction, exactly. Yeah, but it stays calm in the foreground, like you're saying. What about um, Joe Lansdale? Why did you choose? Because I know we wanted to do both of our, like, one of our favorite writers, but why mm-hmm. did you choose him? Because I know you, you've been reading a lot lately. So. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously one of my favorite authors. Um, I think what really spawned it for me to, like, oh, I want to do an episode about him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like, I really wanted to, but when we went to Austin recently, mm-hmm. I had a chance to get my library very caught up on Joe Lansdale titles. Yeah. I kind of filled up a basket with it. I went a little bit crazy. At, think, um, book people, right? Yeah. Cool. I think um, as of now, I've read 23 Joe Lansdale books, and I own 30. We'll get into all their numbers and stuff later. Yeah. But I haven't really even scratched the surface. Yeah. And I like that he he loves stories so much it seems like they're pouring out of him okay i love he, that it seems like he has to write mhm um again, like we were talking about earlier he very very strongly believes in in reading and writing and just books in general and them being fun them being enjoyable taking all the pretension out of reading give everybody a book don't judge what anybody's reading just get them to read yeah, um, I, love I know that. in a couple of the Happen Leonard books, the, um, a couple of the characters are really big fans of Western novels. And anytime they encounter a Cormac McCarthy novel, they never quite mention him by name. But they always get super bummed about that pretentious author who doesn't use punctuation. Oh, and you're, no. you're very aware of who they're talking yeah. about. Which, I mean. Uh, I could take or leave. I understand where he's coming from. I love Cormac McCarthy. I know, he's but an incredible. But I love Joe Lansdale. He's an incredible writer, but it, like we said, it's just one of those things that you gotta be in the right mindset and prepared to do it. Yeah, he's he's just such a fun writer. I don't know how to describe it other than that. Um, He writes so much that he's really not intrinsically linked to any genre of writing. He writes westerns, he writes horror, he writes bizarro fiction. I discovered him in a splatterpunk anthology. He himself, when asked 
what type of writer are you? His response was literally, I'm Joe Lansdale, and I'm not a part of any movement. <laughs> Which just tickled me, and honestly explains why I like him pretty succinctly. Yeah, I think so too. So I think um, next we wanted to go into the history of um, these guys' lives, just find out where they came from, what made them them. Do you want to start with uh, Philip K. Dick? Yeah, yeah, I, I can start. Um, I'm just curious, before I do start, do you have a birth year on Joe Lansdale? Joe Lansdale was born in 1951. Interesting, okay. So Philip K., I've just asked because they're from slightly different eras, so I just wonder if it, like, obviously it does influence their writing, but... Um, Philip K. Dick was born in Chicago in 1928. Um, he, I'm gonna fast forward, he died in 1982 in Santa Ana. Um, and between that, he did move around a lot. Like, they were, um, they, and they spent a lot of their life in Fort Morgan, uh, Colorado, I believe. Really? Yeah. That I always was... think of him as, like, a San Francisco writer. Yeah, and he did. He, uh, they did move to the Bay Area, and then they ended up moving to D.C., and then they moved back to the Bay Area, and he spent a lot of his time there. Um, but I think that they spent some of their childhood in Fort Morgan, because that's where his baby sister, he was, um, he was a twin. All right. And his, his twin died at six weeks. They were pre, which is interesting. They were six weeks premature, and then when they reached six weeks of age, she died. Didn't that kind of contribute to some of his beliefs later in life that we'll get into? Or did you research yeah, into that? Yeah, I think a really interesting thing about all of... I tried to highlight just in general what his life was like, just because it's, I, it's really interesting remembering that, like, these people that you... Uh, revere and like hold as heroes that they were humans and that they had families and like like the book I'm reading right now I'm reading I, another one of my favorite writers Tom Robbins um, the book I'm reading right now is just like short stories about his childhood mm-hmm. and it threw me off at first because I thought it was going to be fiction and um, at first I was just kind of confused but now I'm 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 just really enjoying it because you get a glimpse into um, aspects of them that might show you things about if you're familiar enough with their writing which I'm sure you feel like you might be about Joe Lansdale I feel like I am about um Philip K. Dick especially his like major bodies of work Mm -hmm. that people consider like what's important of his work um I feel like it gives you glimpses into their psychology more if you know those books and like understanding why they came from that place especially with Philip K. Dick because yeah a lot of his late fiction books were almost autobiographical because it was a lot about, like, the hallucinations he was having. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, before I jump to that, though, um, his twin... his So his twin died. Um, she was buried in Fort Morgan, and they eventually ended up burying his ashes. They, like, went back, and his dad buried his ashes um, there. And his name had actually already been put on her tombstone. So I think he always knew he was going to go back and I think that's a really interesting... Sister. I think it shapes thing. his entire life, yeah. honestly. Yeah. yeah. I think it shapes a lot about him. I think there he there's a lot in his work that kind of, I don't want to say revolves around, but kind of um, alludes to kind of, not a lost sibling, say, but almost a shadow. Say, oh my God. I'm so like a shadow person. I'm so in love with you. I'm in love with you too, doggy. Dude. Ruff. Um, so many of the sites I was looking at, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like, I literally just got goosebumps because a lot of them literally said his loss of her and his like, uh, desire for a relationship with her fed into a lot of this phantom concept in a lot of his writing of this like second person, this shadow person, this like phantom twin that everybody had, which it just like blows my mind when I think of, um, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, which is probably... (laughs) I think that's the latest one I've just read. Um, and that one 
it just <laughs> that book blew me away. You want to talk about like phantom people? That one was it. It was just wild. So and you see it a lot in his work. He's just a master of sci-fi. But I think that came from. Okay, so I'm gonna go through more of this, but I do think it came from um, definitely not from his background. But losing his sister really was a big deal to him. Um, but he started writing very early on. He sold his first story to Stirring Science Stories. He was 12 years old. That's um, so cool. It's amazing. That's, I think that's another really big similarity between these two authors, uh-huh. not to cut you off. Or no, anything. no, no. I Honestly, let's just go but, back and forth. Um, the fact that they're both so involved in the fiction magazine the yeah what, what would you call that the i um, don't know i mean lit, i mean we just called i mean it was just lit mags yeah but like the fiction the magazines the the sci-fi mags yeah. the horror stuff like the western ones a lot are of the time for joe lansdale a thing oh yeah okay i subscribed I to an online one yesterday i can't remember it for the life of me yeah I'm but just, there was also yeah. another sci-fi one yeah I, these are alive and well and i know joe lansdale still i think I don't think I'm wrong about this, but still makes a lot of his living submitting short stories, submitting yeah. chapter by chapter series of series. stories. You know, that would be a really great, like and the serialized too, stories. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say that too, because, um, I have it written down and I was going to talk about it later, but he ended up, I think it, yeah, between 52 and 81, 117 short stories. Jeez the, the bulk of which were, uh, short stories in science fiction magazines mm-hmm. as serials or as just, like, whole stories. Looks like full transparency. We're both pretty big PKD heads. Yeah. I think you kind of go more dickheads. for the king. <laughs> PK dickheads. Um, I think you, um, kind of go more for the novels, and I've kind of, well, I've, I've read... Like, do Android Room for Electric Sheep. I've yeah. read Ubik. I kind of stick a lot more to the short stories. Yeah. I really like them. Yeah. We, um, we're reading a reader together, because um, sometimes when we're in the car, I'll read out loud, and um, it's just nice having something that's, like, short stories. Um, but they, I had no idea that, I just thought that those were, people had just collected stories and that they had a lot of overlap, but those big anthologies that you see at, like, bookstores of Philip K. Dick stories, one's mm-hmm. called Paycheck, one's called Total Recall, they... The ones they've used on the covers are the ones that have, like, been made into movies because yeah. they draw attention that way. Um, but there's, those are, that's, like, the official anthology of his short stories. There's five volumes of it. And then the, the one that we're reading in the car right now, the Philip K. Dick Reader, that is, like, probably the most recent. And it's just, like, a six outside, like, floating anthology. But that mm. is the official anthology of, like, the <laughs> Philip K. Dick house. See, so my like, Joe really Lansdale cool. readers are kind of overlapping. <laughs> oh, do they all? Very overlapping. Interesting. But I mean, they're all put out from 20 different publishers, That's three why. different publishers. Like, you know, it, it's over I think this is where 30 that, different um, years, you know? Like, I think this is where that time difference makes it. Yeah. Because he was in a different time. And this, I think the anthologies were put together posthumously. Like, I don't think... That makes a lot of sense. You know what I mean? That would make more sense. Right now, yeah, I'm just grabbing anything I can with Joe Lynn. Hey, if there's a story I haven't read, I I grab it. You just suck it up. You love it. Okay, another really cool factoid that I did not know, and they didn't know until they were, like, both in the sci-fi community afterwards. He graduated in the same class as Ursula Le Guin in Berkeley. I think it was Berkeley High. I don't know if that's the name of it. So they never Um, met each other, They didn't know each other. (laughs) They graduated in the same class, and they figured it out later, like, because they were in the same community, and I think they were friends, but, like, it wasn't not in high school, and I thought that was really funny. That's so strange. I mean, the world is full of things like that, so it just Like, these two prolific 
like sci-fi writers, like two of our favorite writers, just to be in the same high school class is just bizarre to me. I know. It kind of just makes me think. I'm like, what? What did they teach at that school? Exactly. Because, like, what was in like, those I lunches? I wish I, I was there. Cause dang, those were like probably two of my favorite writers. Um, he sold his first story in 1951, so he was 23 years old. His first story he sold was called Rogue. It's about I think it's about a robot dog. I'm not sure. Um, That's, it's actually in that this one. <laughs> it's actually in this one, so we can always look at that. Um, he in in college, I think chose. I don't know how he pursued this belief or if it was just something he fell upon, but it's I'd never heard of it, and he considered himself an a cosmic panentheist. Believing only in the oh, universe God. as a, <laughs> believing only in the universe as an extension of God. And for a second, the first time I told you about this, we were like, "Oh yeah, okay, I get that." But I was thinking of it flipped. I was um, thinking more of like, "Okay, you only believe in God as an extension of the universe." But it's weird to believe in the universe. It's kind of like a giant's dream. And if he wakes up, we all go away. But it's oh, with God, is that what he's talking oh, about? Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, the universe is an extension of God. I took it more as, like, kind of like what I think you and I would consider to be, like, how we would articulate our beliefs in the sense that the universe is the representation of God and, like, the spark of life is, like, its consciousness, like, experiencing itself. Okay. But I don't know because this specific phrasing I've just never heard before. I don't know. You do you, PKD. Yeah, you do you, PKD. I love you. Um, So that was 51... Between fifty one or fifty two and eighty one, he wrote those hundred and seventeen stories. Um, he was just writing a lot of short stories for magazines, and he was also winning um, awards for books. This is now a series on Amazon, but um, he won the Hugo Award in nineteen sixty three for Man in the High Castle, which is I think about to start its fourth or fifth season. And you've read that book, correct? I've read that book. I have not. We. I want to watch the show, but I haven't started. It I've yet. been. I've had so many people recommend it to yeah. me, from other sci-fi nerds to my parents and their friends. Apparently, it's really, really good. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to just go into this major... I want you to talk about Joe Lansdale's life before we go on to talk about their works, but I want to just go over this this set of events, I would say, kind of defined when he... Okay, so he eventually ended up dying. They had to take him off life support because he had uh, two or three major strokes within, um, like, a week or two of each other. Mm-hmm. And he he had had brain death in the uh, the last one. So they pulled the plug um, March 2nd, 1982. But what I... Th- and I talked to you about this before. He was having these hallucinations that a lot of people believe could have been from this blood clot. Um, oh, it was a blood plot? I, I mean, not that I, I thought know. It I was thought a it was a tumor. So I, did I. Yeah, I, we, when we originally talked about it, because it seemed like something that would grow progressively because he very consistently... Okay, let's... let's okay, I'm gonna like, go So much this. of his fiction was based on that, right? It was in kind of based the, around him trying to write himself out of insanity in a way. He literally said been, that. Had it explained he, to me. He, yeah, he at one point said that... Um, Getting those hallucinations. Okay, so between 1971 and 1974, I would say he kind of, like, definitely spiraled a lot. Mm-hmm. And then after that, um, 1974, it was the beginning of that year was when he had those hallucinations. So there, he was just, there was a lot going on for him. So after he wins the Hugo Award, part of the reason he's producing so much writing is because he's taking methamphetamines. Yeah. Um, he attempts suicide by driving off the road in uh, 1964. Um, in 1968, his car was confiscated by the IRS because he wasn't paying taxes as oh, part sure. of a writers and editors war tax protest. I did not. That was know like that. an organization, and I think it was in the Bay Area. That kind of rules. It's pretty. It's pretty cool. Yeah. 
so, but I mean, like, obviously, the IRS, the, the man comes for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in 1971, his marriage falls apart. Nancy Hackett, and that's, I think, who he has the daughter with. Um, he goes to this conference in Vancouver in the next year, and I don't know exactly what's going through his mind, but he announces at the conference that he's in love uh, with this woman named Janice, and he announces that he's in love with her and that he's staying there. So he stays in Vancouver. Oh, um, PK douche. <laughs> oh, we, ha- we can do this all night. I know, you're just, you love it. Okay, that was February 72. March 72, another suicide attempt because this relationship, like, blows up in his face. Mm-hmm. It's like six weeks later, it does not go well. February and March of 74 is when he has the hallucinations. When we talk about those books, like, I talk a lot about his short stories. That was the majority of his career. The novels that he wrote, a lot of the, like, Valis, um, Ubik, kind of, but Ubik was just more, like, a lot more abstract. Valis and the trilogy that followed it was Mm -hmm. definitely him trying to rationalize these hallucinations. They're technically sci-fi books, but the person in the story, he's talking about himself. It literally happens exactly for him as it happened in his real life. And just as as a layman, you you know a lot more about this than I do, Mm -hmm. but from what I know, it's... He gets hit with a pink light, is ancient ancient Rome gets sort of laid over modern society. The empire never ended. Yeah, he finds out time <laughs> is a flat circle. Yeah. And goes from there. Yeah. Is that sort of It's kind of okay, so very he, dumbed down version of what happened. Basically that the peak of humanity and civilization was Rome and that they in some way I don't remember how he because I read this book, this was like last summer. Um in some way, I don't remember what how he describes it, but they basically control humanity because they've, like, mastered everything. And this time is running on, a, like, a divergent timeline, kind of. Mm-hmm. And the only real timeline, like, time has basically stopped in Rome because they've kind of just, like, peaked and they're kind of, like, controlling everything. So okay. basically what he says that pink light was, and it was funny, it was somebody coming to his door for a delivery and her necklace caused, like, a pink reflection in his eye. And it was this pink light he saw over, like, two months and he kept seeing hallucinations. Um, and he, what he said it sounded, what he felt like was that God had come and pulled back a curtain mm-hmm. and shown him what was really happening. Okay. And that, like, through these hallucinations, God was shooting a pink beam of light into, into his brain to share with him, like, divine information. So this was kind of like astral reality and what yeah. we were seeing was the yeah. fake veneer? Yeah. Okay. And okay. at first okay. you want to say, okay, these are hallucinations. This isn't just in the book. Um, this is, like, documented this was he, his life. Yeah. This was a documented... He went into the hospital, and I'm not sure if... I think it was a murmur or it was a defect. He goes into the hospital with his son. I don't remember how old he was. He was either... I know it was a six, but I don't remember if it was six months <laughs> or six years. But he was a young, young child, and he says to them, my son has a heart defect. Like, you need to check him. And it, like, saved the kid's life. There was no reason for yeah. Philip K. Dick to know. And he says that that was given to him, like, from God in those hallucinations. That's crazy. So I've heard that, and that, oh, I just got goosebumps. Like, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of a lot of his life was defined, his late life was defined by those hallucinations. Um, considering he died of a stroke about 10 years later, it might have been, the de- like, the beginning development of that. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be a doctor or no, but um, th- there was a lot that happened in his writing that you can see reflected in that, and I'll talk about that a bit more yeah. later. I want to hear all about Joe Lansdale's. Sorry, I'm just so caught up in this. Maybe even the blood clot gave him some type of access that 
more directly yeah. to the collective unconsciousness. Maybe maybe it blocked out enough of his like. Yeah. Though honestly, you're absolutely right. I know we talk about it not to go off on a tangent about how maybe Please. the collective unconsciousness might be more of a natural mechanism than we that give it works credit for. And, Okay, I'll <laughs> I'll leave that there. Let's no, talk about. We could do a whole episode uh, yeah. about that for real. Okay, so Joe Lansdale, we said, born in 1951 on October 28th in Gladewater, Texas. Um, Joe Lansdale is Texas. Joe Lansdale <laughs> is that. specifically East Texas. He's known as the Bard of East Texas. He writes Southern Fried fiction. That's what they call it. Um, I love this man with every fiber in my being. I love his writing. Um, I think one of my favorite quotes about just how Joe Lansdale encompasses Texas and just his writing style, his darkness, his kind of realism mixed with comedy, mixed with this kind of macabre element, really, really gets summed up well in this quote. I believe it came from his first collection of short stories, but I got this from um, that Splatterpunk book that I discovered Joe Lansdale in um, The Splatterpunks by Paul Salmon. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, Joe Lansdale has a very personal sense of geography and culture in his home state of the Republic of Texas. Sorry, I can't even read my own writing. <laughs> An understandable talent for disturbingly accurate depictions of all-too-believable cruelty and macabre vindictiveness and a feel for characterization which is utterly convincingly and frighteningly involving. Which I think really describes his writing style to a T. He paints these um, really, really dark situations, but then creates these larger-than-life, super-fun characters that kind of just exist in chaos and are just wacky. He's really good at being an engaging writer. Definitely, definitely. So, um, he now has relocated to Nogadoches, Texas, where he lives with his wife. Um, he has two kids. Um, his daughter Casey actually, um, I love this so much, runs a, um, a press company with him called Pandy Press that kind of holds the rights to all of his old stuff and republishes it, that republishes it, protects it. Just, I love that they're working as father and daughter, just kind of republishing all this stuff. I know they have, um a paranormal um, detective young adult book that they wrote together. <gasps> That's so cool. It's really great. I, I love, love Joe Lansdale is just a solid dude, even though his writing's so dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can, yeah, I, I totally feel that. He's the writing in residence for um, the Austin University, which I think is really cool. That's really cool. Which is so great, yeah. Um, does he teach there? I've heard he does from... I, I wish I had done a little bit more research on that, but... But, like, courses, not, like, as a professor. I like think... Like, workshops. I think he... Do, yeah, I think he does workshops. I think he has taught classes. I mean, I could be totally wrong on that. We can look it up. But, yeah, anyway, he, <laughs> he is the writer-in-residence there, which but, is super cool. Yeah. Um, and what think, a sweet gig, too. Right? Sorry. <laughs> one, of, one of the most interesting things about Joe Lansdale is how into martial arts he is. Which, <gasps> it's so cool. He, um... A lot of his, um... A lot of his fiction, especially the Happen Leonard series, has a lot of fighting in it, a lot of martial arts, a lot of judo, a lot of kickboxing. You know, he developed his own style of Shin Chun martial arts. I hope I'm saying that right. And he's um like a high ranking, like the highest rank you can get 
in um, the Martial Arts Hall of Fame in the United States and the International Martial Arts Hall of Fame. What? I had no idea. Right? Isn't that crazy? That's really cool. And he is known for wearing super cool leather fringe jackets, which I really like. That's... I like fringe. Um, I don't... I, I, I just... I think what I like so much about Joe Lansdale is that um, he really, really takes the piss out of... Like, how dark life can be. Okay. I um, love that. Okay. I think, so. growing up, probably when he did in Texas, you kind of, you had to, you were probably exposed to a lot of ugly things that you could choose to do one of two things with. And I think he did something positive with it. I think he um, helps people kind of experience it together. That kind of, like, Schottenfroder concept of, yeah. like, yeah, he... He isn't, I don't think he uses the darkness in his writing as um, an exploitation. I think he's trying to show people they're not alone. Yeah. And, like, obviously, I love, I love like, a good fucked up horror story, and he has those in spades. Yeah. <laughs> but there's heart in his writing. Yeah. I think that's what I'm getting at. I think there's heart in Philip K. Dick's writing. 100%. So, um. Couldn't be better said. Now that we're talking about the writing, um. Let's get into their actual bodies of work. Um, yeah. How many books did Philip K. Dick write, Dana? Okay. Um, so I've pulled several sources, and um, I think it's it's good to know that um, there's a lot of different fan sites that run tons of really great like resources where you can get free uh, books, yeah. too. Um, I did find this online while I was looking for Philip K. Dick books, but I just want to shout out Project Gutenberg in general because they provide thousands and thousands and thousands of free ebooks online. That's the place I think that has the entire Lovecraft Love bleh, Lovecraft library. That would too. be where because they yeah. also they definitely do like classics and things that they consider people should like. It's like part of the human canon, basically. Yeah. I know that's where I go for the stories that I don't necessarily have in print or can't find. Yeah, by, um, like any of the Cthulhu stuff or yeah. any of the. Yeah, just weird Lovecraft stories, yeah. you know, which he had so many too as well, like these authors. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to list these three websites and then pull the information I got from them. So Philip philipdick.com sources 11 short stories from Project Gutenberg, so you can go on there and read them. Mm-hmm. Uh pkdickbooks.com uh lists this much information for his body of work. 36 novels between 55 and 88 that are sci-fi. 9 mainstream novels. 117 short stories between 52 and 81, mostly in pulp magazines, uh, before 1960. And, uh, most Philip K. Dick books are pulled, or Philip K. Dick movies are pulled from these short stories. Um, philipkdickfans.com, uh, is an encyclopedia of every single book and story written by Dick. And when I'm saying encyclopedia, I'm saying it includes the history of the writing, all of the edition of those books, where it's been published, what magazine took it, what year, like, I've, like... That's so cool. I love nerds so much. Yeah, the commitment is amazing. I love organized nerds. Organized nerds. Yeah, so I would say, um, 45 books total, 117 short stories, to answer your question. That's insane. What about you? I know, that's it sounds insane, but you tell me Lansdale. Because I know, yeah, I know, we've been kind of arguing about who's written more, technically. But dude, this is... This is wild. So, um, as of now, according to Joe Lansdale's website, he has 45 published novels, 30 short story collections published. That's wild. Not 30 short stories, 30 short story collections. That's sort of where I stopped counting. Um, he's also written 
tons of comics. He's written Batman. He's written that. Superman. Um, I've read some of his old Jonah Hex stuff. He's written for the Batman animated series, which I'm really excited about. I think we should go watch his episodes as soon as we're done recording. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's insane, right? He yeah. wrote like two full episodes. He's been around so much more in context than I've like known about, you know? It's weird how people can just exist there. Well, yeah, I mean, my dad asked me if I'd seen Bubba Hotep the other day. When we were in Austin, the day I bought all those Joe Lansdale books, he had no idea it was a novella from Joe Lansdale. That is amazing. I remember when he said that, and it's like one of his favorite movies, right? It's like not it's one, one of his, his favorite. new favorites. He it's loves like it. a favorite, but I know that he thinks it's like really funny. And I saw it the other day, and I was just like, okay, this plays perfectly as um, as like a Joe Lansdale story. But it also, I don't know, I just, I, I like that it, it felt modern, even though it's not, right? It's yeah. not like a newer movie. I think it came out in 2002. Yeah. I remember yeah. it coming out in high school. I had, I loved that movie in high school just because I loved horror and rockabilly and all that weird shit. Like, I, I had no idea who Joe Lansdale was. And Bruce Campbell. Oh, and obviously Mr. Chin himself, Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yeah, that always makes me really happy when I realize it's him. So you were talking about the number of books and stories that he'd written? Yeah, I, I, yeah he just has... So many. Like, Huge bodies of work. Like, a a staggering, intimidating amount to where, again, I have 30 of his books and I'm not even close. Yeah. At all. Um, one thing, do you, um, can I tack on something about Philip K. Dick's writing that I oh, haven't please. mentioned? Oh, please. You got it for me and I still haven't read it, but I think it's a really important body of work that gets, I wouldn't say ignored, but I had no idea about it because it wasn't a novel. His exegesis is his... What is that? That's that giant hardcover one that you got me for Christmas like two years ago. Oh, I, okay. I have, it's just okay. like, it's big and I, I've been intimidated to like... Because when, when, when it's like a big book and it's hardcover, I always put it off because I just don't want to like hold, <laughs> don't mm-hmm. hold it. But um, that is his journal from 74 to 82. So that was like oh, I'm sure right when nuts. his hallucination... He was literally, when you say he was trying to write himself sane... That's the book that it happens in. And I think that's another reason I've been intimidated to read it. After I read um, the, not the Three Stigmata of Palmer, when I read the first Vallis book, mm-hmm. I started thinking about Exedrasis and I was just like, I don't even know if I can go there. Because it's, it, I, you remember when I was reading Vallis, I felt like I was going crazy. I feel I, like it, I feel like right, reading, is it Exedrasis? Mm-hmm. I feel like it would remind me of when I was reading The House of Leaves. Yeah, exactly. Just that, like, am I here? Am I dreaming? Is am this, I in a different dimension? That's I, literally how I felt every time I read it. Anytime yeah. I picked it up, I was just like, I don't know what's real and what's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know we had brought up, um, Bubba Hotep a few minutes ago oh, yeah, with my movies, dad, um, yeah. just, <laughs> just finding him, um. I'd say that, again, like, I, I might have said this already, probably his most famous novella up to this point. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, there's the Happen Leonard series, which we'll cover in a few minutes. And now you're talking about stuff that's, like, other media, right? Yeah. Okay. Like, um, I, I, Bubba Hotep was I, uh, probably most people's introduction to him. Like, we were saying a few minutes ago, um, came out in 2002, it was directed by Don Casarelli. Um, stars Bruce Campbell as Elvis, a.k.a. Sebastian Half. Ozzie Davis, rest in peace, dude, as JFK. Um, who, and Ozzie Davis, if you'll remember, is um, an old black man, which is just the most Joe Lansdale twist of a story ever. And according to him, he was patched up after the assassination, died black, and abandoned. 
Ah. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's, that's Joe Lansdale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, the movie and the story, they obviously follow the same plot progression, <laughs> um, takes place in a retirement home to where Elvis, um, has been switched out with another person. Nobody believes Elvis is Elvis. He's trapped in a retirement home where nobody ever comes to visit him. He is friends with um, Ozzie Davis, who is JFK, and they start noticing something's afoot at their retirement home. Something's afoot. Um, there are people dying too fast. They quickly find out that it is um, a cowboy mummy soul sucker that they dub Boba Hotep that has been sucking the souls out of these old people's butts. <laughs> they then <laughs> they then Sorry. motorize a wheelchair, make a flamethrower, and go to war with them. Um, okay. That's will definitely kind of shine some light on what type of author Joe Lansdale is. Um, just off the fucking wall in the best way possible. Absurdist. Uh, just absurdist. But good, just, a good writer. Yeah, he's a great writer. Yeah. Which I, he's so much fun. Um, A lot of his stuff is based around old B-movies, old westerns, old serial pulp, oh, serial, um, sci-fi pulps, western pulp magazines. Um, I know he and um, Joe Bob Briggs have a very similar mentality, have a lot to say um, to each other and about each other. Um, there's a really, really good essay that Joe Lansdale wrote, um, let me find it, yeah. called Hell Through a Windshield, and it's an essay about Joe Bob Briggs, just about kind of Texas, about America, about the drive-in culture, about what that means, about telling stories for stories' sake, about them being fun. I... I can't recommend that essay enough. I mean, I recommend everything he's ever written. Yeah. But you but know, just... we're a Joe Bob Briggs house. We're a Joe Lansdale house. And I just love that they but... can kind of coalesce into this, like, similar thought, this parallel way of thinking. I really like that. You like them separately first, right? Oh, yeah. found out they work together as well. I don't think they work together. Not to work together, but I mean, in the sense that, like, sorry. They're just both quintessentially Texas- and they're, they like schlock, they like horror, they like all that type of stuff. They see value in it. When, and I see value in it. You know yeah. I do. Like, yeah, exactly. I like that a lot. Um, what, what are some of the bigger things that um, Pill of K. Dick has done? Um, so he's actually done a lot. Have you talked about all of your media? Do you want to... Oh, oh, we'll go back and forth. Why not? Um, so he, the stuff that's been made into movies, I said earlier, a lot of it's pulled from the short stories, um, Blade Runner and its remake, obviously. (laughs) What do you, do you like Blade? I know basically everybody in the whole fucking world loves Blade Runner. Do you like Blade Runner? The original or the new one? The original. Um, I really do. But that's because I feel like it. Well, okay. Let me take let me take that back. Um, I think that it. I was satisfied that it was very accurate to the book, but I also didn't like that there was a lot that it left out. Like I don't feel like it touched on his relationship with his wife at all. I don't even think he had a wife in it. Yeah. Yeah, because in Do It, Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, doesn't he have a wife that's like? She's, like, basically suicidal, and she always is at that dino yeah. thing. Taking... Which, cause I love that yeah. book so 
much. Yeah, and that's another funny thing, too, is, like, I'm always... Well, I'd say 99% of the time I'm going to be the, like, oh, book over the movie person. This is definitely one of those cases. Um, I still hold a little bit of ire about what you told me about the name of it. So Blade Runner was just a name that some dude liked. It was... Okay, and again, I don't... (laughs) I don't remember where I heard this. I yeah. can't back this up. But I mean, it makes sense because it's not named after the book. But from what I've heard, the name was purchased off of another arbitrary action movie mm-hmm. about these guys smuggling knives. It's the name Blade Runner. <laughs> and he just really liked that name. And Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep doesn't really pop on a marquee. So he just changed it to Blade Runner. But what really blows my mind about that is that it doesn't have any... It doesn't... I know. Okay, it doesn't... Whatever. All right. So the remake has been heralded as an incredible... Which I agree. I loved the remake. I thought the remake was beautifully done. The remake Um, actually reminded me of Philip K. Dick. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm about to lose all credibility with 99.9% of our listeners right now. I don't like Blade Runner the movie at all. What? I like the new one a lot. I do not like the Blade Runner movie. I've tried so many times. I find it violently boring. Violently boring? It's so hard to watch. It sounds pretty hard to be violently boring. I get it. I get it. I love everything it spawned. I love the aesthetics of the movie. I like that dirty sci-fi future, the weird cyberpunk stuff. I love all of that. Okay. I just don't like Blade Runner. Alright, that's absolutely fine. You are <laughs> you are super, you are allowed to feel that way. I just felt like I was being disingenuous if I didn't say that when we were talking about Phil No, I, I, I appreciate it. you got to be honest about how you feel. So, um, I think it was called something else, but I didn't write it down, but Total Recall was also a Philip K. Dick story. Mm-hmm. Um, the Philip K. Dick story second variety uh, became the movie Screamers. Really? Uh, yeah. Minority Report, same name. Um, yep. It's not on this list, but I'm pretty sure Paycheck. Do you remember Paycheck? Yeah, it would have to be, Yeah, right? because it's the front picture of this one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Minority Report, Imposter, A Scanner Darkly. Here's the thing about A Scanner Darkly. I think that one goes a weird sideways way in the sense that the rest of these, I feel like, are given more literary credibility. And A Scanner Darkly would probably be one of his most autobiographical, another one of those really autobiographical mm-hmm. stories, because he really wrote it about um, his time in rehab, the house he lived in after, and, like, living with junkies before. Yeah. And then um, that, like, weird program he's in after, that's based off of, I don't remember what it's called, but it's, like, Next Something. Um, and that was apparently in the in the period of time that was, like, a notorious, like, yeah. program for getting clean. Um, oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. So he, a lot of it was based around that. So I feel like A Scanner Darkly, I don't, it's not that it doesn't get credit, obviously. It's, like, a very well-known movie. But I feel like it doesn't get as much connection to Philip K. Dick as it should, considering how autobiographical it is to his life. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, I think that a lot of the times A Scanner Darkly, even though I love the movie, a lot, mm-hmm. but I think that because it's so much in the style of like those like late nineties, early two thousands drug movies, mm-hmm. that I think it might get lumped into that even more than it does into like sci fi. This is like a weird Philip K. Dick. Like you're, this is a straight up nervous fiction yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, <laughs> honestly, so many of these stories really fall that way because they can only be possible in a world that like has to be dystopic because everyone is like fascist and paranoid. Like that's yeah. honestly, it's just like exactly what's going on. I only have a few more. There's, um, 
the story was uh, the Golden Man, and it's the movie next with uh, Nick Cage kind of seeing it. Like, oh no, shit! You know, like he what is it? Five seconds into the future? Or? I don't remember, yeah. but I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so he that's that's that story. That's crazy. Radio Free Albemuth, same name, but I don't know. I haven't seen or read that yeah, one. Yeah, me neither. Uh, the Adjustment Bureau, which you and I loved. Yeah, um, that was from the story. The did Adjustment. Did you love that? I don't know if you did, but I did. Um. The story was called The Adjustment Team. Um, <coughs> it's been said, I think his daughter has announced, that there is an adaptation and negotiation for Ubik. That's going to be and, or, fucking and I don't wild. Know, and the thing is, is like I might be saying this like a second language speaker, but I, it might be Ubik. I don't actually know. I, for some reason, I feel like I can say with authority it's Ubik. But I don't know why I I'll, feel that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'll take <laughs> it. Um, this I did not know. Sorry, I'm going to just touch on this because it's really interesting. I think you'll like it too. The Halcyon Company, responsible for the Terminator franchise, which they also think that that is, um, it's actually based off of a story that... Really? Yeah. Um, well, it's not based off of a story, but it's very reminiscent of something they wrote about, like, corp, like robot assassins that were, like, a corporate thing. Okay. And it was, like, they went back into the future. It was, like, very, very similar, and it was from a short story he wrote, and he wrote I think they the bought future? rights. No, he didn't write Back to the Future. That'd be really <laughs> cool. Um, acquired right of first refusal for Philip K. Dick's works film adaptations in 2007. So that means that the people who made the Terminator franchise, um, basically, like, any time... They're the ones that get first choice to, like, make the movie, basically. Okay. Which I'm not mad about. They're doing a great yeah, job. I get down with that. Uh, Man in the High Castle was Amazon's most watched pilot in 2015. Um, third season, fourth season is coming. Uh... And in May 2016, a year after that, Electric Dreams was announced. It's already... I love Electric we, Dreams. Yeah, we watch Electric Dreams. That's all my That's for all my stuff. But I do like ending on that note because I feel like that show being an anthology is like a really cool way to yeah. get a lot of his stories out there. That is the most... Um, it, it's the most accurate Philip K. Dick adaptation to how I feel when I read Philip K. Dick yes. or what I see in my head yeah. that I've ever seen. Yeah. They're not afraid to make it kind of bright and wacky and bizarro, which is what all the Philip K. Dick adaptations are missing. Yeah. Philip K. Dick's worlds are weird as fuck. Yeah, I fully agree with you. And the the, the ones that I paint in my imagination, especially like when I was reading Ubik, like... Yeah, Ubik especially for world, me too. It's a psychedelic book. Yeah, it's, the world I painted was crazy. And like, I don't know what it's going to be like when they make it into a movie, but like, I hope that... Some of it is reflected in, like, what they're doing, what Amazon is doing with Electric Dreams, because I feel like they're bringing a lot of, like, I, I know you, I use that sword a lot with Philip K. Dick, but I feel like they're bringing a lot of that whimsy into Definitely. It. It's very, it's whimsical. Like, yeah. I think that's probably just a, I don't know, maybe that's a um, Bay Area science fiction thing. Because it that's Because there's be. a little Gwen, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's Philip K. Dick. All, there's, like... Sahail, your cousin. Yeah, like honestly. The, all these these writing styles are so whimsical or yeah. so delicate but strong. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they're I'm like just getting off on a limb here. But. I couldn't agree with you more. They're like very strongly sci-fi, but they're still delicate stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like, couldn't agree with you more. I think we, both of us, would recommend that show so much. There's yeah. a bunch of famous actors in it. The last episode we saw was Brian Cranston was in yeah, it, Yeah, right? yeah. I think he's either the executive or one of the main producers. Oh, that's really cool. Of the show, which, and it said it was starring him, but I only remember him being in that episode. Yeah, and I hopefully we'll I, see him more. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, are there any other shows? Because I know, wait, he's done a lot of media for Lansdale, not Brian Cranston. <laughs> oh, yeah, Joe Lansdale, um, there's, I mean, there are a few of his movies floating around other than, um, 
other than Bubba Hotep. Um, Cold in July got made. Okay. Which, I like the movie. It's good. The book was much better. Okay. In my opinion. Yeah. Um, I think the one of the best adaptations I've seen for his work has been the show Happen Leonard. Oh, bef- yeah. Before I get into that, I kind of want to talk about Happen Leonard as a book series. Yeah. I mean, they, they obviously overlap, mm-hmm. but I mean, just to kind of build the world, I want to stick in the books first, just because mm-hmm. there's a lot more to pull from at yeah. this point. Yeah, yeah, So, um, Happen Leonard is a kind of tongue-in-cheek, again, southern fried, larger-than-life, um, kind of detective story. Would you call it a detective story? I think so, because... A crime, crime fiction. Yeah, crime fiction would um, be good. About two friends named um, Hap Collins and Leonard Pine. They've been best friends since they were little kids. Um, when both of their dads were um, killed helping each other change a tire in the rain, and the clan killed them because a white and a black guy were hanging out with each other, and this was... The 50s in Texas. He was just helping it. I know. it's uh, They consider themselves brothers. They were bonded over that, obviously. Um, they're very different. It's definitely kind of an odd couple situation. Um, Hap is described as a white working class laborer in his mid-40s who once protested against the war in Vietnam and spent time in federal prison rather than be drafted. <laughs> um they're both this these kind of like low down kick dog kind of guys. Hap definitely is the um the doormat of the series. Leonard's a little bit more hard ass. He's um well here, I'll I'll describe Leonard. This is what it says. He's a black gay Vietnam veteran with a lot of anger issues. He was shunned by his uncle as a child for coming out as gay. He's very conservative. He loves country music. <laughs> As you find out throughout the series, he's obsessed with stupid, ugly hats. Um, <laughs> in the last Happen Leonard book I read, he was mobbing around the entire book in a, um... <laughs> Sorry. In a Sherlock Holmes hat. <laughs> Wait, that, you told me about this. Everybody commented on, people shot it off of his head during the book... Hap stole it and threw it in the trash at one cool. point. It's just a known thing that you don't fuck with Leonard's hats and he's going to wear them. Um, and they're going to be ugly. Yeah. He's he's super into martial arts, which is, again, that's a very indicative thing of a Joe Lansdale story. Um, he and Hap train together a lot. Leonard is much more um, prepared for violence He than Hap is. But... Um, they take care of each other. It's, it's a very loving relationship. When we were watching the show earlier today, we kept commenting on, especially in these books written in the 80s, they show positive masculinity in such a good way. In such, yeah. It's in such a way, like, as a man, I can stand behind and yeah. say, like, these are good dudes. They come to each other with their problems. They help each other. They're accountable to each other. Like, I, I love... That Joe Lansdale, especially in the 80s as an author from Texas, can really just pull out the, like, no, this is, like, an example of, like, what men can be for each other as friends. And that means a lot to me. Yeah, there's a lot of male affection in it that I think is super healthily portrayed. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really good to see on mainstream television. Yeah, because, you know, I'm, I'm not super... Involved in the world of men necessarily, yeah. I, I kind of do like my own thing. Dudes being yeah, dudes. like I, male bonding kind of weirds me out sometimes. And seeing it in such a um, 
raw, such an unashamed way that's so positive. Yeah. Just really, really makes me happy. Like, I wasn't even, I didn't have any of that written down. I wasn't even planning on talking about it, but that episode we watched today just yeah. really got to me. Or I last night, I guess. It, yeah. Um, there are so many Happen Leonard books at this point. <laughs> um, the newest one, if you want to check it out, is um, Jackrabbit Se- Jack Rabbit Smile. The first one is Savage Season. I would suggest starting with that one just because it is semi... Um, like, seri- uh, serialized. Yeah, serialized. Um, Plus, the first one would lay out a lot of their relationship for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, one of the things that I love most about... Um, Leonard is that his grandmother was being messed with by a bunch of people, so he burns down a crack house on New Year's on Christmas Eve wearing a Santa Claus hat and then beats up <laughs> all the crack dealers um as they're coming out. Yeah. Then employs the two miners to like help him and like takes them under his wing later because they're just kids. Yeah. I love it's a very um it's a very tough love type of show, which I really, really yeah. like. Yeah, it's even more of that just like male affection that's like healthy. Oh, and I don't know how I forgot to mention this. Leonard Pine loves him some vanilla cookies, <laughs> and on the show it's vanilla wafers, which okay, whatever. In the books, it's discount bargain brand vanilla cookies. Give him What's that vanilla- and a Dr Pepper, and he's a happy dude. What's a vanilla cookie? A vanilla wafer. But you said it's not a Nilla Wafer. Because it's off-brand. Oh, okay. It's specifically, he wants vanilla cookies from Walmart. Got it. Oh, okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Those are good, though. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I absolutely love this show. As time progresses, they're kind of buff- they're buffoons at first, even though they're somewhat prepared. Obviously, it's the type... It's, it's kind of borderlines on, like, dad-style fiction, which I'm totally fine with, and I've just dove right into deep um (laughs) so it's very funny very tongue-in-cheek really dark like we were saying earlier um covers a lot of really serious topics like racism ignorance local corruption um a lot of um urban and rural um like deprivation and just kind of how a lot of systems break down in rural communities that um a lot of real life stuff gets covered in those books which i think is really important I feel like he fiction. writes, like, layman sociology books. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. He's very... He's like, very concerned with people. Yeah. With One. a capital P. Just, he's concerned 100%. about people. Yeah. I can totally see that. And the little that I've been exposed to it, I would 100% can see that. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we were talking about earlier, um, if you want to check it out, a really good avenue to start with is the Happen Leonard series on Sundance. Um, Michael K. Williams plays Leonard Pine, so you know there's some really good acting in it. Um, I absolutely love the first season. The second and third season really grew on me. Now I really, really like them. I honestly, I wasn't super into them at first, but really, really dig it at this cool. point. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I've honestly, I've... I, don't, I feel like I've always liked it, but just because it's, like, it's the same thing that... I mean, you can be more uh, critical or have more standards for it because you know more of his work, but I just... Because he's an interesting storyteller, I'm always like, yeah, this is cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, like, interesting to watch, for sure. I, it's just... It's nice seeing an author with so much heart put all that heart into his book 
every single time. 100%. I think with Philip K. Dick, you get a lot of that kind of frantic energy. And with Lansdale, you get kind of that slow plodding, like, the donkey with a hundred... Like, donkey can carry more than a hundred pounds. But, like, a full a full pack, just slowly plodding. He's yeah. going to get there, and he's going to get there every single time when yeah. other things fall off. But he takes his time with his story. He's not afraid to stretch and let it sit for a while. Like, let it ripen up. I love the way he tells a story. He's, like, a big yawn. And I love that. I absolutely love that description. That's... Beautiful. Um, some of my other favorite stuff by him, um, the Drive-In Trilogy is essential Lansdale as far as I'm concerned. It's older, it's three books combined into one. It's about kids who go to a um, all-night horror movie marathon at a drive-in. They get sucked into a different dimension to where they're in the drive-in forever in the middle of space. There are barbarians, there are jungles, there are monsters, there are land whales, there's... Leatherface, there's the Driller Killer. What what more could you want? What more could you want? Um, Dead Man's Road's a book I just finished by him, which I really, really liked. It was a mosaic novel. I would a, say we just finished. Yeah, Dana read it to me. <laughs> but Dana, I think Dana read basically the whole book to me yeah. out loud, which I love. Thank you so much. I love can you. Can I put that on my Goodreads since I read most of yeah, it? Yeah, you really can. Cool, I'm going to. It's, um, it's about um a character named Reverend Mercer, who is a paranormal priest and God's right hand, he's mean, he hates God, but he's a servant anyway, and he kills vampires and werewolves and demons and all kinds of cool shit like that. And hates. And hates! Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think one of my favorite quotes ever from a Joe Lansdale book comes from Reverend Mercer, hallowed be thy name, Lord, and shotgun do your stuff. <laughs> right before he kills a bunch of vampires. Yeah. Um, it's so good. I don't want to ruin it, um... It's only a page and a half if you can find it somewhere. Cowboy is, I think, his best short story he's ever written. It's really serious. It's heartbreaking. But I left a changed person after reading it. I go back and read it periodically. It deals with race in America, especially kind of in the glorified Western Texas cowboy mythos. It kind of... um. Pops that balloon in a really satisfying way. Yeah, I love that story. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Fish Night is another one of my favorite. Um, it reminds me of Philip K. Dick. It reminds me of Ray Bradbury. I think you read that story to me out loud at one point, too. It's about a man goes out into the desert and becomes a cosmic space fish and flies all over space as a fish for the rest of eternity, which is just such a cool story. So, I don't think so I just read bizarre. That, that I love it. cool. Um... I like Duck Hunt a lot, which is, I won't ruin it, um, it's a young boy's initiation into manhood. The reason I put this on my list was, um, Joe Lansdale really specifically talks about how his wife's popcorn is probably the biggest, um, inspiration for his writing, because for some reason, and his wife makes popcorn, he will have a nightmare that night. He calls it popcorn dreams. And he says so, so many of his short stories come from this process of eating popcorn, sometimes on purpose, going to bed, waking up in the middle of the night, and writing an outline for a new story. Usually it's fucking bizarre, hence most of his short stories. And um, Duck Hunt was definitely one of those stories, so please go check that out if you'd like it. I um, love that idea so much. <laughs> it's just so quintessentially Joe Lansdale, Godzilla's 12-step program. 
It's about Godzilla trying to be a better monster, limit the number of buildings he smashes. It's only responsible. Um, it, it, it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Um, my personal favorite story of his is a, a story called Fire Dog, in which a man, a human, applies to be a um, fire station's fire dog, and shortly after he is given a life-size dog suit that he puts on, and it just kind of covers the next few years of his life as the fire dog. <laughs> <laughs> that I one was really funny. So much. That one was really funny. I remember that one too. <laughs> so, so I think we're going to um start to close out here. Obviously, we're big readers here at Weird Vibes. Um we encourage you to do the same. Encourage you to send us any authors you like, anything you might want to hear about. Um these are a couple of our favorites. We're really really happy to share it with you. Um, do you have any closing statements about Philip K. Dick or anything before we read our stories? Um, if you are new to Philip K. Dick and you are going to start reading him, I would just suggest that you um, just let go and go with it because that's really the only way to like fall into it and not get confused by it. Definitely. He can be overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, you just, have just to... go with it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and for Joe Lansdale, um, if you don't, if you don't necessarily find something you like at first, keep digging. He's a yeah. very um, he's a very eclectic writer. Yeah. You can probably find something that you like by him. Um, from western to mystery to horror to adventure to sci-fi. He kind of has it all covered, you know? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. So um, I think we're going to close out by reading a couple of our favorite short stories by the, offer- offers, by the authors that we covered. Um feel free to tune out at this point. Yeah. You can, um, you but you're kind of a cook turkey if you do. Turkeys do get cooked, though. But though you don't want to be a cooked turkey. I know, That's kind of the but point. you always say turkeys get cooked. All right. Without further ado, I'll give you Dana Sweden. Rogue by Philip K. Dick. So, should I read the whole story? It's six pages. Why not? Okay. So, um, if you're leaving us, goodbye, have a great day. But if you're not, this is Rogue by Philip K. Dick. I brought it up earlier. This is the first story that he uh, published at 23. Um, when I say first, this is the story that he considers uh, what started his like full-time writing career. What if we just read our stories over the top of each other at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go first? Is yours shorter? Can we do that for a second just oh. to see what it sounds like? Okay, so that... Wait, should I just cut all this out? No, to start reading for a second. Oh, Rook, the dog. My dead said. dog Bobby doesn't do no tricks anymore. In fact, looked it looked him. like a sucker in the yard. The Rook came coming into the well. yard. I liked it a lot. I was listening <laughs> to your story. I was like listening to your story while I was reading. Oh, okay. do you want me to go first since mine is it shorter? It looks like yours is shorter, so I know I just introduced mine, but I think you should go. All right. So, what's your story? My dead dog Bobby. By oh Joe R. Lansdale. God, you're reading this one. Oh, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, strap in, everybody. This is, I think, the perfect Joe Lansdale story. It really um, covers just the depravity he's willing to go to to get a laugh, <laughs> which I absolutely love. This is my kind of story, so let's do it. <laughs> my dead dog, Bobby, doesn't do tricks anymore. In fact, <laughs> to look at that sucker in the eye, I'd have to get down on my knees and put my head to the ground or prop him up with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought of nailing his head out to the shed out back. That way maybe the ants won't be so bad. But as my old man says, ants can climb. So maybe that isn't such a good idea after all. Mm-hmm. He was such a good dog, though, and I hate to see him rot away. 
but I'm also tired of carrying him around with me in that sack, lugging him into the freezer morning and night. One thing, though, getting killed broken from chasing cars, which is how he got mashed up in the first place. Not a game to play with cars. I have to go out to the edge of the interstate and throw him in his sack at them. And then he gets caught under the tires, bounced up, and I have to use my foot to push on one end of him to make the other end fill up with his guts again. So oh my god. I get so I really kind of hate to look at the sack at the end of the day. And I have to admit, <laughs> I have to admit giving him his good night kiss on the lips is not nearly as fun as it used to be. So <laughs> he has a smell and <laughs> he has a smell and the teeth have been smashed through its snout and are sharp as a stick and they stick out every each way and sometimes they cut my face. Sometimes they cut his I kind of freestyled the end of that just so you know. Like yeah. that's not exactly how he wrote it, but I got all jumbled up. That's, that's not right. exactly how Joel Lanzo wrote You're it. You're an artist. <laughs> Alright, we're halfway through guys. I'm gonna take Bobby down to the lake again tomorrow. If you tie him down to a blowed-up blowed inner tube, he floats. It's not a bad way to cool off on a hot day, and it also drowns the ants and maggots and such. I know it does. We kept my little brother in pretty good shape for six months that way. It wasn't until we started nailing him to the shed-out back that he got to looking ragged. It wasn't the ants crawling up there and getting him. It was the damn nails. We ran out of good places to drive them in after his ears came off. And we had to use the longer and longer nails to put through his head and his neck and the like. And the like. <laughs> Putting the nails out every day with the hammer claw didn't do him any good either. My old man said that if he had to do it over again, he wouldn't have hit my brother so hard with that chair. But he said that about my little sister too when he kicked her head in. She didn't keep that long, by the way. We didn't know as many tricks as then as we do now. Well, I hope I can get Bobby back in his sack. He's starting to swell and come apart on me. I'm sort of ready to get him packed away so I can get home and see Mom. I always look at her for a few minutes before I put Bobby in the freezer with her. <gasps> dun, dun, dun! I'm so sorry. I love that story. That was a Horrifying story. <laughs> so if you're still here, here's this beautiful, whimsical piece of science fiction from Philip K. Dick. You ready, Dana? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to read the whole thing just because it is kind of long, but I just want to introduce this story and show like what his writing is like because I think it's really beautiful. Definitely. Okay. Rug by Philip K. Dick. Rook, the dog said. He rested his paws on the top of the fence. dog story. It is another dog story. <laughs> I never thought about that when you started reading and I was like, oh my gosh. On the top of the fence and looked around him. The rug came running into the yard. It was early morning and the sun had not really come up yet. The air was cold and gray and the walls of the house were damp with moisture. The dog opened his jaws a little as he watched his big black paws clutching the wood of the fence. The rug stood by the open gate, looking into the yard. He was a small rug, thin and white, on wobbly legs. The rug blinked at the dog and the dog showed his teeth. Rug, he said again. The sound echoed into the half, silent half-darkness. Nothing moved nor stirred. The dog dropped down and walked back across the yard to the porch steps. He sat down on the bottom step and watched the rug. The rug glanced at him. Then he stretched his neck up to the window of the house just above him. He sniffed at the window. 
The dog came flashing across the yard. He hit the fence and the gate shuddered and groaned. The rogue was walking quickly up the path, hurrying with funny little steps, mincing along. The dog lay down against the slats of the gate, breathing heavily, his red tongue hanging. He watched the rogue disappear. The dog lay silently, his eyes bright and black. The day was beginning to come. The sky turned a little whiter, and from all around, the sounds of people echoed through the morning air. Lights popped on behind shades. In the chilly dawn, a window was opened. The dog did not move. He watched the path. In the kitchen, Mrs. Cardassi poured water into the coffee pot. Steam rose from the water, blinding her. (laughs) She set the pot down on the edge of the stove and went into the pantry. When she came back, Alf was standing at the door of the kitchen. He put his glasses on. You bring the paper, he said. It's outside. Alf Cardassi walked across the kitchen. He threw the bolt on the back door and stepped out onto the front porch. He looked into the gray, damp morning. At the fence, Boris lay, black and furry, his tongue out. Put the tongue in, Alf said. The dog looked quickly up, his tail beat up against the ground. The tongue, Alf said, put the tongue in. The dog and the man looked at one another. The dog whined. His eyes were bright and feverish. Rug, he said softly. What? Alf looked around. Someone coming? Did the paper boy come? The dog stared at him, his mouth open. You certainly upset these days. You better take it easy. We both getting too old for excitement. He went inside the house. Do you want me to keep going? It's a pretty cool story. Okay. I just, yeah. The sun came up. The street became bright and alive with color. The postman went along the sidewalk with his letters and magazines. Some children hurried by, laughing and talking. About eleven, Mrs. Cardassi swept the front porch. She sniffed the air, pausing for a moment. It smells good today, she said. That means it's going to be warm. In the heat of the noonday sun, the black dog lay stretched out full length under the porch. His chest rose and fell. In the cherry tree, the birds were playing, squawking and chattering to each other. Once in a while, Boris raised his head and looked at him, looked at them. Presently, he got to his feet and trotted down under the tree. He was standing under the tree when he saw the two rugs sitting on the fence, watching him. He's big, the first rug said. Most guardians aren't as big as this. The other rug nodded, his head wobbling on his neck. Boris watched them without moving, his body stiff and hard. The rugs were silent now, looking at the big dog with his shaggy ruff of white around his neck. How is the offering urn? The first rug said. Is it almost full? Yes, the other nodded. Almost ready. You there, the first rug said, raising his voice. Do you hear me? We've decided to accept the offering this time. So you remember to let us in. (laughs) No nonsense now. Don't forget, the other added. It won't be long. Boris said nothing. The two rugs leaped off the fence and went over together just beyond the walk. One of them brought out a map and they studied it. This area really is none too good for a first trial, the first rug said. Too many guardians. Now, the north side area, they decided, the other rug said. There are so many factors. Of course. They glanced at Boris and moved back farther from the fence. He could not hear the rest of what they were saying. Presently, the rugs put their map away and went off down the path. Boris walked over to the fence and sniffed at the boards. He smelled the sickly, rotten odor of rugs, and the hair stood up on his back. That night, when Alf Cardassi came home, the dog was standing at the gate holding up the walk. Looking up the walk. Alf opened the gate and went into the yard. How are you? he said, thumping the dog's side. You stopped worrying? Seems like you've been nervous of late. You didn't used to be that way. Boris whined, looking intently up into the man's face. 
You had a good dog, Boris, Alf said. You're pretty big, too, for a dog. You don't remember how long ago you used to only be a bit of a puppy. Boris leaned against the man's leg. You a good dog, Alf murmured. I sure wish I knew what, is on, what was on your mind. He went inside the house. Mrs. Cardassi was setting the table for dinner. Alf went into the living room and took his coat and hat off. He set his lunch pail down on the sideboard and came back into the kitchen. What's the matter, Mrs. Cardassi said. That dog got to stop making all that noise, barking. The neighbor's going to complain to the police again. I hope we don't have to give him to your brother, Mrs. Cardassi said, folding her arms. But he sure goes crazy, especially on Friday morning when the garbage men come. Maybe he'll calm down, Alf said. He lit his pipe and smoked solemnly. He didn't used to be that way. Maybe he'll get better. Like he was. We'll see, Mrs. Cardassi said. The sun rose up, cold and ominous. Mist hung over all the trees and in the low places. It was Friday morning. The black dog lay under the porch, listening, his eyes wide and staring. His coat was stiff with hoarfrost. And the breath from his nostrils made clouds of steam in the thin air. Wait, did they say hoarfrost? Hoarfrost. <laughs> H-O-A-R-F-R-O-S-T. Hoarfrost. I don't hoarfrost. Know. That sounds... Like glitter. I don't know what that is. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely just glitter. <laughs> and the breath from his nostrils made clouds of steam in the thin air. <laughs> Suddenly he turned his head and leaped up. From far off, a long way away, a faint sound came. A kind of crashing sound. Rook! Boris cried, looking around. He hurried to the gate and stood up, his paws on top of the fence. In the distance, the sound came again, louder now. Not as far away as before. It was a crashing, clanging sound, as if something were being rolled back, as if a great door were being opened. Rook! Boris cried. He stared up anxiously at the darkened windows above him. Nothing stirred. Nothing. And along the street, the rugs came. The rugs and their truck moved along, bouncing against the rough stones, crashing and whirring. Rug! Boris cried. And he leaped, his eyes blazing. Then he, came more, he became more calm. He settled himself down on the ground and waited, listening. Out in front, the rugs stopped their truck. He could hear them opening the doors, stepping down onto the sidewalk. Boris ran around in a little circle. He whined, and his muzzle turned once again toward the house. Inside the warm, dark bedroom, Mr. Cardassi sat up a little in bed and squinted at the clock. That damn dog, he muttered. That damn dog. <laughs> he turned his face toward the pillow and closed his eyes. The rugs were coming down the path now. The first rug pushed against the gate and the gate opened. The rugs came into the yard. The dog backed away from them. Rug! Rug! He cried. <laughs> the horrid, bitter smell of rugs came to his nose and he turned away. The offering earned, the first rug said. It is full, I think. He smiled at the rigid, angry dog. How very good of you, he said. The rugs came toward the metal can, and one of them took the lid from it. Rug! Rug! Boris cried. <laughs> Huddled against the bottom of the porch steps, his body shook with horror. The rugs were lifting up the big metal can, turning it on its sides. The contents poured out onto the ground. Rugs scooped the sacks of bulging, splitting paper together, catching at the orange peels and fragments, the bits of toast and eggshells. One of the rugs popped an eggshell into his mouth. His Ew. teeth crunched the eggshell. Rug! Boris cried hopelessly, almost <laughs> to himself. The rugs were almost finished with their work of gathering up the offering. They stopped for a moment, looking at Boris. Then slowly, silently, the rugs looked up, up the side of the house, along the stucco, to the window, with its brown shade pulled tightly down. Rug! Boris screamed, <laughs> and he came toward them, <laughs> dancing with fury and dismay. <laughs> 
<laughs> Reluctantly, the rugs turned away from the window. They went out through the gate, closing it behind them. Look at him, the last rug said with contempt, pulling his corner of the blanket up, his, uh, blanket up on his shoulder. Boris strained against the fence. His mouth opened, snapping wildly. The biggest rug began to wave his arms furiously, and Boris retreated. He settled down at the bottom of the porch steps, his mouth still open, and from the depths of him, an unhappy, terrible moan issued forth, a wail of misery and despair. Come on, the other rug said to the lingering rug at the fence. They walked up the path. Well, except for these little places around the guardians, this area is well cleared, the biggest rug said. I'll be glad when this particular guardian is done. He certainly causes us a lot of trouble. Don't be impatient, one of the rugs said. He grinned. Our truck is full enough as it is. Let's leave something for next week. All the rugs laughed. They went up the path, carrying the offering in the dirty, sagging blanket. Oh, Machi, Machi, what a story. What were the rugs? I thought they were going to be cats. I thought they were birds at first. Me too. Okay, so next episode, rugs. Rugs, what are the rugs? <laughs> well, thank you for sticking with us if you've made it this far. Um, if you haven't, you don't know. So This has been Weird Vibes. We've been talking about Philip K. Dick and Joe Lansdale. Please, please, please go to your local library and check these guys out. I'm sure they have a ton of their books. Yeah. Oh no, I just knocked my coffee over. Oh, no. So from the Weird Vibes crew, oh, don't no. be a turkey, don't get cooked, because turkeys get cooked. <laughs>